Welcome to the new podcast, Mission 150. I'm your co-host, Sam Nevis. I'm the Associate Director of Communication here at the World Headquarters of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'm your other co-host. I'm David Trim, the Director of Archives, Statistics and Research for the Seventh-day Adventist World Church. As we launch this podcast in February 2023, we're looking ahead to 2024, which is the 150th anniversary of the Seventh-day Adventist Church sending its first missionary overseas from North America to Europe. David, it seems to be a given that we've all been focused on mission as Seventh-day Adventists from the first moment the church existed. Is that right? I wish it were true, Sam, but unfortunately, no, it's not. Unless we characterize mission solely as being evangelism wherever the church is, in that sense, yes, the church has always been about mission. But if we think of it in terms of being cross-cultural mission, pioneer mission that pushes back the frontiers of the, of the church, then I'm afraid actually in our early history, it's not just that we didn't think of it, we thought about it and we rejected it. We, we did not want to go abroad. We did not want to go outside North America. Why not? It's a good question. Um, and I think if you look at the language of Revelation 11.10 and Revelation 14.6, um, it probably seems astonishing that, that, we, that we could have ever been so parochial. But we were, and that, I can summarize that best by telling a, a quick story. In the winter of 1859, a Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping Adventist, we have to call them that because the Seventh-day Adventist name hasn't been adopted yet, the church hasn't been founded yet. So the winter of 1859, one of these Adventists, a Mr. A.H. Lewis, writes to the Review and Herald. Now that's the church's paper, but it's more than a paper because it binds together this small movement which is scattered across a large part of the United States. And he writes to the editor and asks, is the third angel's message being given or to be given, except in the United States? So you note the twofold question, is it being given and is it even to be given? And the review editor, Uriah Smith, publishes the letter along with an editorial note in reply in which he says, we have no information that the third message is at present being proclaimed in any country besides our own. And then he continues with an ingenious suggestion. He says, it might not perhaps be necessary to do this, he means, in order to, to fulfill Revelation 10, 11, because our own land is composed of people from almost every nation. I see. So let's, let's have a look at Revelation 10, 11, because that's an important verse. They understood that to be uh, their mission at the time? Well, it's interesting for the, uh, that they usually refer to it in terms of Revelation 10, 11, rather than Revelation 14, 6, even though they've already settled upon the three angels' messages as being crucial, as is evident in the fact that he says, is the third message being given? It's about the three angels' messages. You might expect him to reply in terms of Revelation 14, 6, but instead he replies in terms of Revelation 10, 11. Do you want to read that yeah, for us? Sure. Um, it says, then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, 
and King. So this is probably because they were so close to the disappointment. Right. Well, closer than we are, though you have 15 years between the disappointment right. and this. But most of them have gone through that. Yeah, and, and they feel like the little scroll that they've eaten. It's exactly. So they still feels Exactly. It's, it's sweet in the mouth, but it's bitter in the stomach. That's what they're, and I think that's why they're, they're, they're referring to that. But also, the language is interesting, because what is it again? It's prophesied to many... Um, peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Right. And... There's nothing there that compels you to say they've got to be living in their own countries. And so this is the ingenious thing that Adventists come up with. We don't need to go into all the world. Because the, world, the whole world has already come to America. This is, this, this is the belief. In, of course, in the 1850s, it wasn't true. It's, it's, <laughs> even today, it would be a stretch. But in the 1850s, you've really only got people who've come from Europe. Um, and we'll come back to that uh, a little bit later when we're talking about the, the mindset that they had. Um, the idea is you can honor the command to go into all the world by just preaching to immigrants in the United States. And they did a lot of preaching, obviously, they, in the sense that they've had, they had this expansive view of let's help as many people understand the Bible as possible. Yes. They had discovered this beautiful thing that they believed every human being should know. Absolutely. But maybe... Was it a failure of imagination? It, it's partly about where they come from and when they come from. They come, the, you know, early Adventists come from New England uh, in the United States in the first half of the 19th century. That's and, Northeast, right? Yeah, the Northeast of the United States. And there's a very wide mindset at the time um, that thinks that this is the apple of God's eye. So, for example, um, a prominent Congregationalist minister and the president of Brown University, Edward Griffin, uh, in, in a sermon in 1813, asks rhetorically, if there's going to be a revival in the church, where is it more likely to rise than in the United States? And if in the United States, where rather than in New England? <laughs> and Josiah Litch, who is one of the two chief lieutenants of William Miller, um, actually develops this. In 1843, he wrote in, in an, a Millerite paper, he wrote this, New England, being the most pious portion of the earth, would naturally be the theater of the darkening of the sun and moon and the falling of the stars. Now, of course, if you're from New England, maybe you'll take that seriously, but for anybody else, you have to laugh, you know. <laughs> New England being the most pious portion of the earth. Is it? Is it really? Um, and actually, even the logic, why does that mean that this is where the signs are going to take place? But then he continues, the proclamation of the coming of Christ has been the most effectually proclaimed here. And then he says this, and it's actually kind of shocking. The world has had the midnight cry in proportion to the prevalence of true Christianity in the various parts of the earth. The implication being hmm. that if you haven't heard the midnight cry, you don't deserve to hear the full gospel. That is incredible. It as is. a statement in itself. And it's... Yeah, that was 1843. You're quoting from a book there. What book is that, David? So it's a book called Lessons from Battle Creek. Um, it's uh, a collection of papers that were given at uh, an event held in Battle Creek to mark the 150th anniversary of the organization of the church, which took place in 1863. So the 150th anniversary of that was nine, uh, 2013. Uh, and so I have a, a chapter in this called Illuminating the Whole earth mission in the battle creek years 
So we've, we've got a group of people that is reticent for, for sending missionaries abroad. But we send, we decide to send our first missionary in 73 and eventually he goes in 74. Yes. Right. So what happens between 59, we don't need to go anywhere and it's about time that we send somebody. Well, the first thing that happens is that Adventists are reading other papers than just Advent, Seventh -day, the Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping Adventist Review and Herald. They're reading other papers. They're reading their, their own local newspapers. They're reading some other church papers. And these are full of the stories of American Protestant missionaries in Asia and the Middle East especially, but also in Africa to some extent. Um, even the mainstream newspapers of the day are full of the stories of American missionaries because, of course, America is a highly Christian nation. And so this is something that is very interesting. And so Adventists are reading these newspapers, reading these accounts of people like Adoniram Judson, who goes to Burma and Hudson Taylor in China and sort of begin to say, well, just a minute. Should we be doing this as well? Does this sort of thing that applies to us um, as well as to the rest of American Protestantism? Um, and so it's inevitable, I think, that Seventh-day Adventists begin to wonder about whether they have a responsibility. And we have a good insight that they did. We know that some Seventh-day Adventist leaders were thinking of mission as a global responsibility because of the wording of the first general conference session. Uh, sorry, the wording of the first general conference constitution adopted in May 1863. Um, because it says that the newly established general conference executive committee quote, is to have the special supervision of all missionary labor and as a missionary board shall have the power to decide where such labor is needed and who shall go as missionaries to perform the same. And once you use the language of a missionary board, mm. then inevitably, if you're a, an American Protestant, which all the Ad Adventists are, you're thinking of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign, for Foreign Mission. You're thinking about the recently founded Baptist Foreign Mission Board. Missionary boards and missionary um, societies have been springing up in the first half of the 19th century, both in England and in America. And they're not sending missionaries to Oregon or California. They're sending missionaries abroad. They're doing both. They're sending. The, so the first some of the first missionaries the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions send are to uh, what is now Washington and Oregon. They go to Walla Walla. Um, and indeed, they get they get killed there by Native Americans after an unfortunate misunderstanding. They also send missionaries to what is now Oklahoma, to the homes of the Cherokees and the Choctaws. And actually, uh, in a couple of episodes time, we'll be hearing about one of those early missionaries, Hannah Moore, who becomes a Seventh-day Adventist. But they are also sending people abroad. Yes, these missionary boards are sending people to Burma, to China, to India, to Turkey and to Africa. There was a sense now that, that our pioneers needed to organize. And it is more accurate to say that uh, they had a mission and the structure they had had to serve the mission. So it's almost like the mission had a church structure rather than the church structure had a mission. That's, and if you look at the wording of that part of the constitution, that really underscores what you're saying. Why were they so resistant to structuring? Because of their experience as Millerites. Okay. Millerism was originally not meant to give rise to a new denomination or a new movement. It was supposed to be a movement of reform and revival within existing churches. I see. So the Methodists continue to be Methodists, but just really close to God in, in right. and in expecting And expecting Christ to come imminently and literally. 
Seventh-day Adventists today are so used to assuming that Christ's second coming must be literal that we've lost sight of the fact that for much of the Christian world, for a long time, it hasn't been understood that way. Because Christianity today, many people speak about the second coming of Christ being literal and the evangelical churches and non-congregational right. churches all over the world, that's what they hope and expect. Right. But, but that wasn't a reality in the 1840s, 50s. Right. Not in America. Most Protestant churches had concluded that Christ's return was going to come after the millennium, not before. So Seventh-day Adventists are what is known as premillennialists because we believe that Christ's coming comes before the millennium and actually inaugurates the millennium. Most Christians in the 19th century, most Protestants, most Catholics too, were postmillennialists. They believe that Christ comes after the millennium. So what then introduces the millennium? The millennium, they come to believe, is the triumph of Christian values. And if you're an American, like Josiah Litch, especially American Protestant values and maybe especially New England values. So the Millerite message is actually scandalous because you're saying something directly opposite to what's been accepted for in a large part of society for quite some time, which is the millennium is the triumph of the church, the, tr the spread of Christian values, the spread of Western values, in other words, all around the world. Society is going to keep getting better and better and more moral until eventually the church has triumphed. And that's the millennium at the end of which Christ will return. And they, not all of them believe in a literal second coming, but there's many who do, but it comes after the millennium. And these Adventists are saying the world's gonna get from bad to worse, Jesus will come. Right. And it is this, the, the literal second coming of Christ that we will see in the, in the, in the, in the clouds. Yes. That will inaugurate the millennium. So, exactly. But, and, and so when Adventists share this, they get greeted with great hostility in many of their churches. Obviously, there's a, a, a minority and even a significant minority of Methodists and Baptists in particular. Not so much Congregationalists um, or Presbyterians or Lutherans, though there are some of those. There's a significant minority that says, yes, this is biblical truth. But the hierarchy and the, the main membership of all these churches says, no, you're talking nonsense. And so they find themselves being shunned, being mocked, being disfellowshipped. And so Adventists conclude the problem is organization. The problem is structure. The problem, the reason that we, our message has been greeted with this hostility instead of being welcomed is because there's vested interests involved. And so we don't want to have organization. And so the early Seventh-day Adventists, the people who will become Seventh-day Adventists, um, believe this. They believe that the prophetic in injunction to come out of Babylon is actually to come out of organized churches. The moment we become organized, we'll turn into we Babylon. we turn into Babylon, which is what George Storrs says in the 1840s. And it's, uh, it's something that is accepted, a truth that's accepted by many former Millerites and indeed those who become Seventh-day Adventists throughout the 1850s. Now, eventually, James White, who, of course, the husband of Ellen G. White and the most important leader of the Seventh-day Adventists, James White is one of those who says, come out of Babylon means come out of organization. And then he witnesses the confusion and the chaos that ensues when there is no structure and there is no organization. And so he actually changes his position and comes to say, no, coming out of Babylon means to come out of this disorganization. Mm. And he, he does this based, based partly on the derivation of Babylon. Where is Babylon? It's on the Tower of Babel. What is the Tower of Babel? It's 
confusion. confusion. When people's, you know, the languages are mixed and confusion yeah. results. So he says, this is what we're in. He actually writes some of his strongest prose. And James White writes pretty strong prose. John, James White has this wonderful acerbic, sarcastic turn of phrase, which not every early Seventh-day Adventist appreciated, I'm especially sure. when it was turned against them. Mm. But he actually says, you know, um, some of our people who came out of Babylon 10 years ago are now in a more perfect Babylon than ever before because Ooh. they're so confused. And he actually says, you know, imagines a brother, a brother overcautious and a brother timid. And they'll say, no, no, we can't do this. It's becoming like the fallen churches and actually says, no, brother cautious or brother timid has got the mark actually stamped on his own forehead. The mark so that's Babylon, pretty strong that's language pretty strong for a leader. Language. How old is he at this point? Uh, James White at that point is in his mid thirties. Okay. So he's in the, the great age to be very uh, assertive <laughs> and full of energy and, and enthusiasm. Absolutely. So, so this is why Adventists are wary of structure. Um, and yet by 1860, they've overcome that partly because of James White, partly because of Ellen White, they gradually persuade enough of the Sabbatarian Adventists that they need to get organized, that they start to do that. The culmination of which is when they found the general conference in May of 1863. And they're all held together by this, uh, by, by the magazine. Yes. Um, that communicates back and forth with everyone. The review and Herald, the review or just, they usually just call it the review. The review. And then it's time to organize. So 63 comes, we organize. Before we get to that, I, I want to ask you a question that you're going to hate. Um, in the 1850s, 40s, 50s, around that time, most evangelical and Christian churches did not believe, as we pointed out, that Jesus was coming in the clouds in a visual way before the millennium. Right. Now it's the 21st century, 150 years have gone by, and, and the general state of Christendom is very different. Mm. Many, um, I don't know if most, but there are plenty of Christians around the world that believe that Jesus is coming in the clouds, and that is undeniable if you believe scripture. Yes. You are one of the trusted historians of the Adventist church, which is why you're going to hate this question, I think. <laughs> Do you think we've had a dent in influencing Christianity to open up their eyes and look at scripture more closely to see that Jesus is coming? I would, I would like to say that that general spread is because of us, um, but I don't think it is. Uh, I, I wish we had that kind of impact, um, but I think it's really the, it's, it's the emergence of the fundamentalists in the early 20th century, and it's also the emergence of the charismatic and Pentecostal movement with whom we don't necessarily have the best of relations. So it's, it's, it's almost painful to have to say that, but they read Bible prophecy and believe it. They read apocalyptic prophecy and believe it. And Pentecostals and charismatics have had some of the biggest impact in Latin America and Africa, for example. And so they're sharing this, this premillennialist literal uh, return of Christ. This, this, that's what they're sharing as they go around the world. Um, it also comes partly from people who had been Adventists because they have some influence on those groups at second or third hand, because of course we're talking about the great disappointment of 1844 and the emergence of these other uh, groups are, is, is happening 50 and 60 years later. But nevertheless, there is a, there is a, there's a chain of influence, you might say. And many of these uh, movements, the Pentecostal movements and others, had to contend with Adventist missionaries 
uh, who, well, that's true. who did study the Bible together pretty closely. And who knows exactly, but it's, it's unlikely that we had a direct effect. I which think is, that's right. Which is something that I, I find fascinating because we have such today a large structure. We started in a very humble ways rejecting structure, but today we have a pretty large structure. We do. Um, we, we like pointing out that for every McDonald's in the world, there are four Adventist congregations. <laughs> so it's with all of this structure, you would think that more people would know about us and would, would contend with, with the things that we believe. Uh, but maybe we haven't gotten to that point yet, and it's coming in the future. Anyway, back to our transition here between 1863... Yep. When now we have a structure, we voted it, we have a constitution, we have a name. Right, and we have a constitution that talks about a missionary board, which if you're, an, for the reasons that we touched on earlier, if you're an Adventist, if you're a Protestant in North America, you're going to assume that that might mean mission to Native Americans, but you're also going to assume it means mission outside North America. So that language of a missionary board tells us that there are leaders who found the General Conference who are thinking in terms of mission. And we know who one of them is. One of them is James White. Because the week after the General Conference is founded, uh, James White writes in the review and says that it may be possible that the General Conference Executives uh, Committee will send him, and the him is a man called Benjamin Snook, that will send him as a missionary to Europe before the close of 1863. So here you are in June of 1863, and James White is saying we may be sending Benjamin Snook to Europe before the end of 1863. What happened? Well, it's, it's interesting because Snook himself, two months later, publishes an article called The Great Missionary Society an article in the review, so the Great Missionary Society, and he evokes the Protestant missionary societies, and he has an argument that the new Seventh-day Adventist Church has to be, above all, a missionary society. And he then sets out a biblical model of mission, and he says, the Lord does not ordinarily call and send men independently of the church. Instead, the church, as a missionary society, sustains her missionaries in the field of labor and co-works with them for the salvation of of souls. And then he ends by saying, all should desire to be doing what they can in this way. And then he says, Christ's commission to his disciples is unlimited, requiring that they should preach the gospel. And here's the key word, everywhere. So it's not to every people, i.e., if you want to view it that way, their representatives, their handful of people who've emigrated to the States. Mm -hmm. It's not an every one, it's an everywhere. So here's Snook. He's laying out the foundation of what will become your, your tr traditional Absolutely. Adventist mission. And he's setting it out. It's not that individuals go. The church as a whole has to support them, which is an important point that, you know, there's a collective responsibility. But then he says everybody has to be contributing to this and we have to go everywhere. And yet it's another 11 years before they send their first missionary out. Were they resident of, of sending? Did, did this not resonate with people or were they more worried about their local structure first? Okay, I think there's a few, there's a few reasons why everything just hangs fire in, in 1863, why things don't move forward. First, it is the Civil War. And so obviously you've got other things to distract you, including the fact that the United States government imposes more widespread conscription. And so Seventh-day Adventists have to come up with a response to that. What is that exactly? Uh, force, obliging people to serve in the army. Ah, okay. 
so the draft uh -huh. uh, conscription. It's the middle of the Civil War. The Union armies need more men. They're not getting enough volunteers. So they say, right, we'll, we'll conscript men, young men into the army. Most Seventh-day Adventists are opposed to that because they see themselves as being in the peace church tradition. So the church has to come up with a response to that. Um, and of course, it's just a general distraction. But then that was true in 1863 and they're already talking about doing it. So I, you know, I, the Civil War is clearly part of it and the introduction of the draft, which means church leaders have to come up with a response. That's part of it, but I don't think we can say that's all of it. There's a second reason. In 1865, Snook apostatizes and apostatizes in a really dramatic way. Mm. Um, he and a, a colleague in the Iowa conference, William Brinkerhoff, both leave. And for those of you who know, those of our listeners who know Adventist history, the name Snook and Brinkerhoff go together uh, as apostates. They're the first splintering of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Mm. And they do it over the prophetic ministry of Ellen White. As in they don't agree with it. They don't agree with it. So by 1865, nobody's going to be going back and reading an article that Snook published in the review two years earlier and saying, this is the way to go forward uh, because Snook is now of the devil. I see. Um, so that's, that's one of the factors. But I think there's a more profound factor, which is American exceptionalism, American parochialism. We come back to you know, the quotations that I, I shared earlier from uh, the president of Brown University and from Josiah Litch, one of the, the chief lieutenants of William Miller, um, which is basically the message of God is being proclaimed in America because America is special. I see. Now, why do I conclude that that's the case? It's partly because the church has missionaries almost put into their lap and chooses to reject them. So it's, it's not just that the, the church doesn't say, okay, we're not going to send Snook to Europe. Mm -hmm. Other people come forward who could be missionaries and the church refuses to use them. So the most notable example of this is a man called Michael Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky uh, was a Polish man. He'd actually become a Franciscan monk. Um, but he decides the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. He gets married, which, of course, if you're a monk, there's no more dramatic <laughs> gesture of saying, I reject the, the truth of the Catholic Church than getting married. And he and his family, uh, his wife is, uh, is Marie Virginie, they emigrate to the United States. And in the United States, Tchaikovsky and his wife become Seventh-day Adventists. Mm -hmm. um, and Tchaikovsky still has a soft spot in his heart for his homeland, for Europe. So in 1864, he comes to church leaders in, in Battle Creek and say, says, send me to Europe. Send me to Europe. I and my wife, you know, I already know some of the languages. I'm familiar with the context. He's volunteering to go. And the leaders in Battle Creek say no. Now, we have to say that there are some reasons on their side. At the, if you just look back and say, how, you know, how stupid and how blind is that? So to be fair, we have to say that Tchaikovsky had some, some issues. Now, Tchaikovsky had already been running a mission in New York, and there were question marks over his judgment and especially his financial judgment. Um, 
And as it turns out, if people in Battle Creek suspected that Tchaikovsky had poor financial judgment, they were right. Um, in the, the next episode, when we talk more about actually the actual start of the mission, we can talk about um, the group of believers that he founds in Switzerland, who he leaves in a very financial, a bad financial way, because he's, he's not a good manager of money. He's a terrible manager of money. Um, not a lack of integrity, it's a lack of competence, it seems, or, or he's, both. He's, he's not financially corrupt. I he see. doesn't. He doesn't embezzle funds and steal it's the church. It's just sheer incompetence. It's, it's of, in, it's of in, how to use it. Yeah, but also there is a there is a degree of suspicion about his moral um, character because he ends up abandoning Mary Virginie, his wife, and their children. He leaves them in America to go back to Europe, um, and possibly church leaders suspected that he already was interested in having an excuse to leave his wife and children. And when he's there, he ends up, where it's pretty certain, having an adulterous affair with, with, with one of his converts. So he's still married, but his wife's in America, and he is sleeping and living with, uh, a, a, I think, a German convert. So it's possible church leaders thought this is a good idea, we need it, because Snook hasn't apostatized yet in 64. Right, that's right. James White, the year before, was focusing on missions. They created a board in the... So all the things were favorable. Yes. But there was a gut instinct, perhaps, that this wasn't our guy. I think so. And, and that's kind of borne out by what happens next, because Tchaikovsky goes to a group called the Advent Christians. Now, the Advent Christians, like Seventh-day Adventists, are a denomination that comes out of the Millerite movement. Mm -hmm. But they're the largest. In America or Europe or where? Yeah, America. They're just in America. Yeah. They're just in America. They're the largest at that time mm -hmm. group to come out of Millerism. Today they still exist, but they're very, you know, they're, they're, they're tiny compared to us. So the situation is completely inverted. Reversed. But back in 1864, the Advent Christians are the ex-Millerite mainstream. Okay. And so Tchaikovsky goes to them and says, send me as a missionary to Europe. And they agree. Um, but once he gets to Europe, he starts teaching the Seventh-day Sabbath, which they have, you know, completely reject and repudiate, and teaching other Seventh-day Adventist doctrines as well. And he's sending reports back to the Advent Christians that get published in their paper. But he's also probably sending reports. No, he's no, not sending he's reports. Not. No, he's not sending reports to the review, but he's sending back reports that completely leave out that he's teaching Seventh-day Adventist doctrines to his new converts. And I mean, I think, you know, naturally today we might laugh at that story, but this isn't exactly a good example of integrity in, in sure. mission to sure. take one denomination's money mm -hmm. and teach another one's set of doctrines. Of course, they both have the advent, the second advent and the premillennial return of Christ in common, but there's some pretty major differences. And the advent Christians and the Seventh-day Adventists themselves are at loggerheads. So this is, you know, this is a man who uh, in a... Uh, we're both from, from Britain originally or have lived there for a while. There's a great British expression, economical with the truth. <laughs> and Tchaikovsky was economical with the truth. He had poor financial judgment. He probably had some poor moral um, standards as well. But here's the thing. Let's, let's say that the people in Battle Creek sensed all this. They might not have known it all, but they sensed that there was mm -hmm. something wrong. But that explains why he doesn't get sent Were there Europe. others that wanted to go? There's also a woman called Hannah Moore. And we'll have a separate episode about Hannah Moore. Okay. But just to say, she was a Protestant missionary already serving in West Africa. And 
she becomes convinced of Seventh-day Adventist truth and actually writes back from West Africa and says, you can count on having Seventh-day Adventist members or Seventh-day Adventists, plural, on the coast of Africa. But she also writes to church leaders in 1864 and expresses the hope that your society may do something toward a Sabbath-keeping mission in this part of Africa. Now, that's a pretty big hint. Is this published in the review? It's published in the review. So the review was uh, received a letter and thought, hey, th th let's spread, let's talk about this. Right. And so she's saying, let's have a Sabbath. I hope you'll have a Sabbath keeping mission in Africa. And of course, she's already there. There's, there wouldn't be any need to find somebody to make all the arrangements, to have the expense of sending them there. She's already there. They could simply adopt her as a missionary. But they don't. But they don't. And indeed, there's no evidence that they even think of that. If they did, it doesn't get written down and it doesn't get preserved. But here, you know, she raises the idea, nothing comes of it. And a couple of years later, because she's not in the best of health, she comes back to the United States. But we'll talk more about her story in a later podcast. Okay. Uh, but still, you, so in, you've got, in 1864, you've got somebody who comes forward and says, send me to Europe. And you've got somebody else who's already in Africa and is saying, wouldn't it be nice to have a, a Sabbath-keeping mission uh, in Africa? So there's two opportunities there. But they missed those opportunities. They missed those opportunities. Yet it must have impacted them somehow because we're, we're now progressing to the moment where they finally made that decision. Right. But I think the reason they don't is because American Adventists still just don't accept that biblical phrases like every nation and all the world really meant what they said. They were still caught up in American exceptionalism. Um, and even foreigners who had emigrated to the States could get caught up in this. We know this because Tchaikovsky himself, um, when he's working in New York City, working for their immigrant population, he describes himself as doing work. He describes himself as doing mission in foreign nations. That's his description, in foreign nations. So, and, and this echoes Uriah Smith's point from a few years before, right? Absolutely. And in November 1863, there's a man called John Matteson, who'd been born in Denmark, emigrated to the States when he was a, with his family when he's a teenager, becomes converted to Seventh-day Adventism, and wants to spread, see the third angel's message spread back to Scandinavia. But what does he propose doing? He writes to the review and says... Um, I would love to, 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 to see the, the third angel's message proclaimed all around the world. But what he actually proposes is translating tracts into Danish and Swedish to sell to immigrants right to here. the United States, of whom there's quite a lot of Scandinavian immigrants. There's a big Scandinavian migration in the middle of the 19th century. So even to people who are themselves from Europe, and say, we'd like to see the mission go beyond the United States. Actually, when it comes down about it, actually, when it comes down to it, talk about reaching immigrants as mission in foreign nations, or when they say, um, let, as Madison does, I want the third angel's message to be carried to the ends of the earth. But how do we do it? We do it by translating and reaching immigrants here. So I think this, this, uh, this idea that America is the place is just a really potent one, and it's even influencing, therefore, people who themselves come from Europe. And that's the tension that develops in the 1860s from the beginning of the church. Yes. Well, David, we'll leave it here for this episode. Uh, thank you for watching Mission 150. 
We hope that you will come back uh, the following week so you can see the progression of all of this uh, emphasis and what happens when we finally decide to send missionaries to every language, tribe, tongue, and people as Revelation 14.6 says. Until then, uh, follow this channel, follow this podcast, share it with friends who might be interested. And of course, the hope of this is that you will also be involved in the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Mm -hmm.